Welcome to episode 63 of the Rapid Change Matters podcast, a conversation with leading proponent of the Buteco breathing method and author of The Oxygen Advantage, Patrick McEwen. My name's Howard Cooper, and for over 14 years now, I've been fascinated with helping people to create personal change quickly. But I still come across many who believe that lasting personal change has to take a long time, consisting of reliving traumas or deep psychological analysis, or simply that flawed notion that understanding why you have a problem will somehow make it go away. I'm on a mission to get people who work therapeutically with others to shift their thinking and realize that these beliefs are not written in stone. Rapid change can happen. So, to help you open up to what's possible, I'm chatting with top therapists and agents of change who are out there getting real results with real people really quickly. Before we get to the interview, I've got big news. Rapid Change Works is now running live training events, and you can check out the latest events coming up by visiting rapidchange.works, where you can also download a free, quick-to-read PDF on five strategies to amplify your client's response, along with all the information about this episode and episodes still to come. Now, over to the interview. Today, we breathe some new life into the podcast. My next guest is the author of the book The Oxygen Advantage and is someone who's trained thousands of people to breathe more efficiently. A leading proponent of the Buteco method of breathing, he may change your views on breathing for good. I myself have got enormous value out of reading this book and practicing the methods outlined and have noticed huge benefits in using some of these principles in my client work too, especially when helping people with anxiety. So it gives me enormous pleasure to welcome Patrick McEwen to the podcast. Welcome, Patrick. Thanks very much, Howard. Good to be here. It's absolutely fantastic to have you. I'm hoping we can dive straight in uh, because sure. uh, many of my listeners might not uh, know much about you or your background or how you ended up becoming one of the leading proponents of the Buteco method. So maybe you could give us a little look yeah. of a, a fill-in and tell us about your background. Sure. I suppose. I suppose it's not a career that you would you would go into at least 20 years ago by choice. So I fell into it by accident. I fell into it because of my own health issues. As a kid growing up, I had chronic nasal obstruction. I was a chronic mouth breather. Um, if you're breathing through your mouth, your sleep is impacted. Mouth breathing is also causing fast upper chest breathing. That results in agitation of the mind. And mouth breathing was also feeding into asthma. So when you have a breathing pattern disorder, such as fast upper chest breathing, it wasn't just impacting my asthma, but it was impacting my sleep and it was impacting anxiety. Um, but of course, you learn to live with it because you know what no other way. And I used to always people used to say to me they could hear my breathing or did I have a head cold? And uh, I still felt no matter how much air I breathed that I still I wasn't getting enough air. And it wasn't because I was under breathing. The problem was I had developed the habit of breathing too hard, too fast, too much air. And that will fly in the face of what's often taught and told to people who are under stress. They're often told to take a deep breath, they take a big breath. It's entirely the wrong thing to do. So I was, you know, after 15, 20 years, I can't remember exactly, but certainly it was 20, yeah, 20 years of in and out of medical doctors and hospitalizations with asthma. And I came across in an article in, in an Irish newspaper about the work of a Russian doctor, Konstantin Buteko, 
This is back in 1998. And he said two things. He said, breathe through your nose at all time. And he said, breathe light. So I started using his exercise to decongest my nose. And that night then I taped up my mouth and I used a nasal dilator. And the first morning, yeah, I didn't find much of a difference. But the second morning I woke up feeling alert. And I woke up feeling more alert than I had ever done, that I could ever remember. There was something that was a difference there. And, you know, when we think of breathing, breathing seldom gets attention. And when it does get attention, oftentimes the information that's put out there, it's it's not correct. And it doesn't make sense. And oftentimes, I think it can do more harm than it can good. If people believe that hard breathing and taking big breaths is going to help calm them down, it's entirely incorrect. So what I would like to explore is maybe why have misinterpretations come into breathing? Why has breathing been overlooked? What role does breathing have to play with people with anxiety and poor sleep? And what's the connection between breathing, sleep and anxiety? So to cut a long story short, it made a huge difference to my life. My background is economics from a university in Dublin called Trinity College in Dublin. I was in the corporate world. And then in 2001, I had a hunch that I wanted to teach breathing. So I trained in Russia. Dr. Buteka was there. He was alive at the time and he accredited me. I came back to Ireland 2002 and I've been teaching it full time ever since. I've written eight books. My latest book, The Oxygen Advantage, has gone into 14 languages, and I teach this internationally. So I'm fortunate. I found a job that I absolutely love to do, and um, it's very satisfying. It's very rewarding, and, you know, it, it's, it's a tremendous, to be honest with you. It's really interesting hearing all that. One of the questions that I, I wanted to explore with you is, you know, you knew that you had sort of congestion or people commented on your breathing you mentioned earlier on. Yes. And then you suddenly see this article or, or this thing about this guy that you've never come across before. What was it that stuck out for you that, that helped you to go, okay, that's interesting. There's something there about what this guy's saying that I want to try. Because um, it would be yeah. so easy to dismiss something. A lot of people, you know, when you say stuff that falls outside of their cognitive biases, they go, well, well, that's probably rubbish. And they just carry on deep breathing harder. But, but you didn't. You kind of went, oh, hold on. There's something different here. And that's interesting. Yeah. Well, the newspaper article, it mightn't have been the first time that I came across the importance of nose breathing. But certainly the article was what struck a chord with me. Um, I was conscious that I remember being in hospital with asthma back in 1994. And also that same year, I had, or 1995, I also had an operation on my nose to fix my nose. But following the operation, the surgeons never told me to breathe through it. So the surgeons addressed the nasal obstruction, but didn't address the habit. And this happens with children and adults, thousands of nasal, op nasal operations going on. Children are having adenoids removed, but the children aren't encouraged to nasal breathe afterwards. It's a real issue. You can't just change the obstruction without changing the behavior. But I remember being in hospital with an asthma attack, 1994, two medical doctors come in, they assessed my breathing, and they commented that he breathes both through his nose and through his mouth. And that stuck with me. So I knew there was a problem there, and probably that nasal breathing was the way to go, but it wasn't my preferred route, because if I tried to breathe through my nose, I felt I wasn't getting enough air. So I needed techniques to be able to decongest my nose 
And all of these techniques have been available and written about. Like when I look back at this, when I look at journals written back over 100 years ago, looking at how mouth breathing can affect young children, how these kids have no attention in school, how it alters the growth of their face, how it causes crooked teeth, how the the face is dull and expressionless, the the teacher is accusing the child of, of daydreaming, that was me and falling asleep. And we have up 50%, up to 50% of studied children are persistently mouth breathing and it's completely being overlooked. And it's a huge problem. There was a study conducted by Karen Bonnock in Stratford-upon-Avon. It was, I believe, I think if, if I can remember correctly, it was an eight-year study looking at 11,000 children. And they looked at children with sleep disorder breathing and mouth breathing as a contributory factor to that. Children with sleep disorder breathing, they, if untreated, they had a 40% increased risk of special education needs. Now, you know, why is this being overlooked? Why is nobody talking about mouth breathing? Why is nobody talking about mouth breathing during sleep? And I would say, dealing with people with anxiety, how can you have a calm mind if you don't have a sleep, good sleep quality? And we have to consider that the bi-directional relationship between breathing, sleep, and the mind. If we are stressed, our breathing gets faster in upper chest, but faster in upper chest breathing also feeds back into stress and agitates the mind. Can you have a calm mind if physiologically your breathing is faster in upper chest? If you have faster in upper chest breathing and mouth breathing, it impacts your sleep quality. You don't achieve deep quality sleep and you won't wake up feeling refreshed. If you don't wake up feeling refreshed, you're more likely to be anxious because you cannot concentrate. You cannot be productive. So you cannot achieve everyday tasks that you want to do. So your sleep is feeding into anxiety, but also if you have an agitated mind, it's difficult to fall asleep. Insomnia, so individuals who can't switch off where there is incessant and repetitive thought activity, where there's one thought after the other, whereby we're ruminating on on issues that are going on and we end up twisting and turning, you know, for a couple of hours before we go to sleep, that's going to also result in um, waking up feeling unrefreshed. So an agitated mind affects our sleep. Sleep quality can impact an agitated mind. An agitated mind affects breathing and how we breathe affects an, an agitated mind. How we breathe affects our sleep. How, and I, I'll, I'll stop talking in a second here because sometimes I go into it. Like, I remember speaking to a group of psychotherapists and I told them, you know, I didn't tell them anything, but I explained cognitive behavioral therapy is tremendous, but it is not changing respiratory physiology. And we know that from studies. And if you are working with somebody with anxiety, with depression, with high stress levels, with post-traumatic stress disorder, how can you really make a huge difference to that individual's life unless you look at sleep and unless you look at breathing? And those are two things. And the research in terms of breathing is not just about taking that big breath or that deep breath. It's not just about focusing on the biomechanics of breathing as is often emphasized in yoga and pilates breathing is more complex but it's not that complex at the same time there are three dimensions to breathing biochemical biomechanical and cadence of the breath 
And the, the breath itself, by working with it, it can impart a tremendous therapeutic benefit from simple practice that you bring into your everyday life because it's through your breathing that you influence the functions of the body that's outside of your, your normal automatic control. So I think it's a great inroad. But when we talk about breathing, we need to quantify and qualify what are we talking about and how to make the changes to breathing because we don't want to make mistakes with this. If an individual has a belief of taking hard, full, big breaths, they will actually do more harm than good. Do you think, so I, I, I would like to just, before we get too far in, clarify for the audience what uh, specifically the Buteco method uh, of breathing is. Um, and then I've got a bunch more questions, uh, and one of the things that I'd love to explore with you is, do we essentially, through giving out advice as we grow up, from hearing parents and counsellors who don't really understand the mechanisms, get in the way of just the natural understanding of how to do it? I, are we all yes. born knowing how to do it perfectly and too much analysis and too much outside influences gets us to basically practice and screw it up and then we have to relearn? And that's something that I'd, I'd be keen to, 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 to see. Sure. Well, I'll answer the first question. Dr. Buteco was focused mainly on the biochemistry of breathing. Mm -hmm. He said that there is a normal partial pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood, which is correct. It's 40 millimeters of mercury. But if you breathe too hard, you get rid of too much carbon dioxide from the blood through the lungs. And carbon dioxide is not just a waste gas. It performs a number of very important functions in the human body. For example, your blood circulation is influenced by carbon dioxide. And if you breathe too much air, you blow off carbon, too much carbon dioxide, you remove too much carbon dioxide from the blood through the lungs, and this causes blood vessels to constrict. So many of your listeners will have cold hands. That can be impacted from breathing too hard. They have brain fog. That can be impacted from breathing too hard and cold feet. Another aspect of carbon dioxide is that it's not just this waste gas that people talk about, bring in oxygen and get rid of carbon dioxide. Because when oxygen transfers from the lungs into the blood, in the blood, it's carried by hemoglobin molecules, which are proteins inside the red blood cells. But we need the presence of carbon dioxide as a catalyst for, for red blood cells to release oxygen to the tissues. And that's the Bohr effect that was discovered back in 1904. So again, if we are breathing too hard, we blow off too much carbon dioxide. This in turn causes red blood cells to hold on to oxygen stronger. And as a result, less oxygen actually gets delivered throughout the body. So the harder we breathe, the more our blood vessels constrict and the less oxygen gets delivered to tissues and organs, including the heart and the brain. And hyperventilation, if you are, and most people I think will identify with this. If I say to somebody, I want you now to take 10 full big breaths in and out of your nose or mouth, they will often feel lightheaded and it can happen. All it takes is 30 seconds of hard breathing to reduce blood flow to the brain. And it can reduce blood flow, blood flow to the brain by up to 40%. And that's a significant drop. And of course, that hard breathing is synonymous throughout our evolution with fight or flight, with stress. So stress, of course, is making us breathe faster. But then it doesn't make sense for us to start breathing harder in an attempt to negate stress, because all we're going to do is to make it worse. So Dr. Buteco was so centered solely on carbon dioxide and the biochemistry, getting carbon dioxide levels normal, 
by normalizing breathing volume. He said that people are breathing too hard, they are breathing too fast, and they are breathing often upper chest and often through a mouth. And what this is doing is impairing circulation and oxygen delivery. Now, you could say, like, so to answer, now, with Buteco is a, is a super method. It's absolutely brilliant. But I also then started Oxygen Advantage back five years ago. And I started Oxygen Advantage for this reason. Well, for a number of reasons, but here is one of them. I brought together courses. I was giving courses back in 2010 because of the financial crash here in Ireland. And people were, were you know, a lot of stress. There was a lot of anxiety. Um, and I started giving mindfulness courses, which I have a huge interest in mindfulness. And I've always been following, you know, Eckhart Tolle and I've done Vipassana courses and reading up on it. And a lot of my work would have been looking at the spiritual aspect of it, as well as the, the breathing and respir respiration. However, I often felt that mindfulness wasn't sufficient. And also we needed to bring in functional breathing. So I called it the Buteco mindfulness method. Why not bring in mindfulness? but also bring in Buteco and also bring in sleep. But I couldn't help notice, but 90% of the people who were attending were females. And we had very few males coming to the, to the courses. And I was wondering, like, males are the ones that are most often than not that are suffering with anxiety, depression. But why wouldn't they turn up to a breathing course? Because it wasn't, maybe it wasn't suited to the alpha male tendencies. And that's how Oxygen Advantage was born to some degree, because I wanted to do a program for sports performance, to increase concentration, to increase resilience, and to give different breathing techniques. And what, what it gave me was a great freedom, because Buteco is Buteco. And who am I to change Buteco? Because it was developed by a Russian doctor. It's a very, very pure method. And I didn't want to deviate from that. But with Oxygen Advantage, I could start off from scratch and I could bring in the biochemical aspect from Buteco Method, but I could also bring in the biomechanical aspect and I could also bring in coherent and cadence breathing. I could also bring in breath holding, intermittent hypoxic hypercampy training. And that's basically breath hole exercises to kind of for sports performance. But my point here is meditation is prescribed and often recommended for people with anxiety. How can you meditate when your mind is in an emotional turmoil? And when I was talking to these youngsters coming in, and we had 3,000 people come in over 2010 to 2013, I would always ask them, how many of you here have ever meditated in your life? And it was maybe 10%. It wasn't that high because there were a lot of them were newcomers. And I asked, how many of you still meditate? And it completely dropped off. And I think there's a, there's a message out there because it's not... Sometimes we think of the guy who's meditating as the guy in the lotus position and the straight back and he's all the beads and he's got the robes and all of that. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. Meditation is not how you, what, it's not what you do when you're in a formal setting, but it's how you bring this into your everyday life. I had an agitated mind. Many people have an agitated mind. And if you were to look inside the heads of most individuals, you will see that their minds is in, are in a state of an emotional turmoil even though they have lovely white teeth and they'll present you with a smile. And if you go to North America, they'll say everything is good and how are you doing and all of this stuff. But it doesn't tell you what's going on in their heads. Yeah. Your life is a meditation. We carry our breath with us. 
So what I wanted to do was to bring people's breathing attention onto their breath in their everyday life to get them out of the head, but to do more than just get them out of their head. Increase blood flow to the brain, increase oxygen delivery to the brain, change the biomechanics of breathing because the connection between the diaphragm and the mind, but also change the cadence of the breath, slowing down the breathing for practices of 5.5 to 6 breaths per minute to help improve vagal tone, baroreceptors, heart rate variability, respiratory sinus arrhythmia. So in a nutshell, breath is something you carry with you. And if you think of breathing, don't just think of breathing in one dimension. When I was a Buteco instructor, my silo was all about biochemistry. Mm -hmm. And I didn't focus on the biomechanics and I didn't focus on the cadence of the breath. The yoga instructor, they're often their silo is the biomechanics. They don't always look at the biochemistry and they don't look at the cadence of the breath. Heart rate variability, they look at cadence, coherence of breathing, but they don't look at the biomechanics and they don't look at the biochemistry. We can't just think of breathing of one dimension. And in working with people with anxiety and an emotional turmoil, and I have learned a lot over the years with working with these groups and oftentimes by making mistakes. And I've put people into a fear response by having them do breath tolling because people with panic disorder, you know, some groups have a very strong feeling towards the fear of suffocation. And when I'm having people reduce their breathing volume, of course we are generating air hunger. I used to keep them, tell them to keep going with it in terms of expose their body to air hunger, which would be good. But at times I was putting them into too much of a fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you learn a lot and this is what experience and 18 years down the road, I realized that, yeah, I know something about breathing, but there's a lot I don't know. And, you know, it, it's it's really one thing about the breath, but it's it's a wonderful thing to work with. I mean, I think what's really interesting is that it's, it's one of these things that's so easy to overlook because everyone does it. It's like the elusive yes. obvious, just sitting there. Well, like, what, what do you mean? It's like if someone said to you, you know, can you learn to move your arms? It's like, well, I move my arms. I mean, I've yes. got my arms. I'm an expert in doing that. Yeah. So the idea of kind of focusing in on something that we all take for granted and, and looking at further details. Um, what, what was yes. your take, by the way, on um, this idea of do we, are we all born breathing perfectly? And then we kind of get external influences that put us into maybe some dysfunctional patterns. I'd say we were at one point born breathing perfectly. But we have to think of that the breathing of the infant from day one, that's going to be coming from the breathing of the mother. And it's yeah. not that I'm here to put the emphasis on the mum, but if you have a mother in a state of stress and they are breathing imperfectly and that may be disturbing blood gases, could that impact the infant? That's a question. I don't know. And yeah. um, we certainly know from craniofacial changes, and I've seen it with my own daughter, that she was born with a very high narrow palate. And that's not ideal because, of course, then the airway is compromised. And if you have a small nose and a high narrow palate, you're more likely to mouthbreed. But infants are born breathing through the nose because the soft palate at the back of the mouth and the epiglottis meet. So in actual fact, an infant is an innate nasal breather. Um, you know, lifestyle factors have changed our breathing so much. Food, um, lack of breastfeeding during infancy, over overheated houses. You know, our houses now have got so much insulation 
People may not be opening the windows. Um, it, lack of physical exercise, talking. Talking is not good for breathing in terms of, because when you talk, it increases the respiratory rate mm -hmm. and it increases the tidal volume, which is the size of the breath. This in turn is causing over breathing. So people who talk for a living, they will often find that they are very tired at the end of the day talking. That's not because of the mental concentration, but that's because of the act of talking because their breathing is harder than their metabolic needs. So you have to consider that when you breathe hard, you're blowing off too much carbon dioxide and talking is causing you to breathe hard. Like wh when did our ancestors get up a thousand years ago? Very few of our ancestors got up at eight o'clock in the morning, got into work, worked in some office for some multinational company under stress, talking down the phone all day long, having to put up with all of the competitive politics, management with their open door policy, saying that we're looking after employees, they're calling employees associates and team members. And all they're doing is pitting and milking. And, you know, it's like a really wonder about, I think it's sometimes it's really a deception. And it's a deception in many organizations. When I was a 20 year old, I used to be jealous of the guy. I was the guy in the suit. And I used to be jealous of the guy going into the big tall skyscraper, going into the big six or big five accountancy firms. What a wonderful job. Well, I'm 46 and all I can say is, thank God, I never had to work for one of those companies. I was in, you know, and I think the, my only point that I'm saying this is that it's the stress that's put on people. And you, you could ask two questions. I don't want to go away from it, but you can ask a question here. Is it? Because I was in that corporate world and I didn't like it and I felt a lot of stress and I felt I had to put stress on employees under me as well because there were monthly targets to meet um, people of my managers of my level. We were all pitted against each other. It was all done, you know, so underhanded. I just feel that it, it was just when I look back and also the age profile in the company that I worked with, the, there was only about one person over 32 years of age. And the reason being is because they got guys in their 20s, they could pay them a low wage, they could put them under a lot of stress, they could mold them, they could milk them, and when they burnt out, they could get rid of them and they could replace them with even younger guys. So my point here is I was in that position, but was it the job that was causing me the stress or was it my reaction to the job? My resilience at the time wasn't good. My sleep wasn't good. My mind was already agitated. And if the mind is agitated, this, it doesn't take much of a situation to put you into that stress response. So mm. coming back to your question was, do we breathe naturally perfectly? Yes. Um, do we now breathe naturally perfectly? Probably no. I think lifestyle has really got in the way. We are not, we are not living the way our ancestors lived. Our faces are changing. If you look at the work of Professor John Mew from... Um, from London, his, his son, Dr. Mike Mew, is, is carrying on with that. If you read the books, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, published back in the 1930s, you know, the, the shape of the human face is changing. The airway is becoming compromised. And as the airway becomes compromised, it does result in mouth breathing and with mouth breathing, poor breathing patterns. But we have to look at, I suppose, there is a genetic influence in breathing. And persons with anxiety, panic disorder, PTSD, their breathing is impacted. It's not just that anxiety changes breathing patterns. Breathing patterns change anxiety. 
And in the literature, 80% of people with anxiety have breathing pattern disorders. We have to change that. So one of the reasons why I was so keen to interview you was uh, for two reasons. One, uh, and I know we've spoken about this briefly before, but uh, just to fill the listeners in, the I, I've been, as they know, working with clients for many, many years. And I would say since reading uh, the book, The Oxygen Advantage, I just haven't been able to stop noticing people who I'm seeing with anxiety coming in and being uh, mouth breathers. I, I conversationally said to you, like almost 90% of the people I, I'm seeing seem that yes. way. And you said, no, no, it's 80%. That's what the research shows. <laughs> um, but yeah, it certainly seems very, very high. And um, it, it became more and more interesting to me that how can I only be looking at the way the mind is looking at this uh, and then ignoring something which is so glaringly being presented so often. So that was one thing. And the other thing that led me to the book in the first place, which is it's kind of a personal story, which I wanted to share with people, which was uh, many, many years ago, I ended up for various reasons having having a spirometry test at the GP uh, to check breathing function. And he calls me in um, to come and get the results. You need to go in and see him. And of course, your mind starts wondering, what is it? Mm-hmm. What's going on? What has he found? And I thought maybe it's asthma or maybe it's something else. And he went, well, there are some signs, he said, with his concerned GP face. There are some signs of uh, restrictive lung capacity. Uh, so, of course, what did I do? Uh, I did the thing that a lot of people would do. I went on Google, really helpful. Uh, and the only thing <laughs> I could find uh, with the phrase restrictive lung capacity was this uh, people talking about restrictive lung disease, which talked about being fatal and um and you can't take in a deep uh, breath. and So I was told to go and see a consultant, and my, the appointment was in three weeks' time. So what would I do unconsciously, or even consciously, I would say, to try and reassure myself that I was taking it and able to take in enough oxygen, and I didn't have restrictive lung capacity? Well, I would take these massive, big, deep breaths in. I'd really want to feel my lungs expanding. And if I could feel them expanding, then I would know and feel reassured that, of course, my lungs weren't restrictive. So I did that um, for about three weeks. But I noticed after the first few hours, uh, maybe even sooner, I was beginning to struggle to feel like I could take a deep breath in. It wasn't satiating. And so I started to think, well, shit, this really is a thing. I, I must really have the restrictive lung capacity. So I tell you what I must do. In order to reassure myself that I definitely am okay, I should probably carry on doing even deeper breaths. And so what happened over the course of three weeks, and by the time I ended up at the consultant, I really was struggling to with shortness of breath. I really couldn't breathe. Um, I was really convinced that I was about to die of restrictive lung disease. Um, I was pretty certain. And, uh, of course, but the doctors just kept telling me, uh, well, you know, there is a chance it could be anxiety-related they said. Um, So just take some deep breaths. That was the only thing they could ever do or say to me. And of course, all the tests ended up coming back normal. And in fact, ironically, the consultant even said to me when he looked at the spirometry readings that the GP had sent him, he said, I don't know why you've been sent here. He's misread them. Your your spirometry readings are fine. But at that point, I didn't feel fine. Because so I'm curious that I had this thing that I've seen uh, termed as air hunger. And um, what would have been going on physiologically for me? 
Well, I think it's very common. I think I think it's very common that you know, if we have a stressful event in our life, and you know, if it's a stressful event that's been going on for say a number of weeks or months, long term as opposed to short term, as opposed to something that happens over a few minutes, or if we have perfectionist tendencies that we place high demands on ourselves, and society puts a lot of pressure on us as well, you know, all at all ages in terms of. Um, your A-levels, you know, getting a job, getting a house, all of this stuff. And that can impact our breathing. And if we get into a habit of persistently breathing a little bit faster and a little bit harder, that in turn can change the biochemistry of the blood. Now, the body then does want to normalize blood pH, but in the process, the kidneys dump bicarbonate. So you have a reduced buffering capacity lower co2 and it's not that everybody with anxiety has lower co2 but it is common that people with anxiety or a genetic predisposition towards it or even just perfectionist tendencies they develop breathing pattern disorders and that breathing pattern disorder becomes habitual so even when the stress is removed the breathing pattern disorder remains and one of the symptoms of breathing pattern disorders is it's often common air hunger so air hunger is when one would have say, an increased sensitivity to the gas carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. um, whereas you have an athlete and they will typically have a well-trained athlete will typically have a reduced sensitivity to the gas carbon dioxide because it's carbon dioxide that drives your breathing. So as carbon dioxide comes from the, from the, from the tissues into the blood, as carbon dioxide increases in the blood, blood pH drops and the brain reacts by sending a stimulus to breathe. It's not oxygen that drives our breathing. The, but the body doesn't like it's the, the body doesn't breed to bring in oxygen. Yes, in the process, of course, oxygen is brought in, but the body breeds to get rid of excess CO2. But if we are overly sensitive to CO2 or carbon dioxide accumulation, our breathing is harder. Now, there are very simple exercises, and I'll actually go through a couple of them. But mm -hmm. I'm going to go through a history. There was a Dr. Claude Lom from Papward Hospital in Cambridge back in the 1970s. And he was one of those physicians. He was a chest physician. He was seeing chronic hyperventilation and he started writing about it. And he called it the fat file syndrome. He said, you've got a group of patients that are going from doctor to doctor. They are having a myriad of different symptoms. Um, and also they're having symptoms which is not just related to one organ or system. And he said that these patients are going from doctor to doctor to doctor to doctor to doctor. They're having these tests. The tests are coming back as negative. The, the doctor then thinks that the, the patient in front of them is a hypochondriac because they have an array of symptoms that are not related to each other. And that the patient is often to, to go home and told to go home, take a deep breath for themselves. Okay. Dr. Claude Lom called it the fat file syndrome because he said that the thickness of the patient's file is a diagnostic clue of whether chronic hyperventilation syndrome is present. And he said, the thickness of the file gives us more information than the contents therein. Now, why was that not taken aboard by the medical profession? Because medical doctors, this is taken from a book called um, Behavioral and Psychological Approaches to Breathing, written back in 1994 by two medical doctors. They asked the question, if hyperventilation syndrome is causing so much you know, difficulties out there, why hasn't it been embraced? Their conclusion was that Medical doctors said it wasn't their domain, that it was the domain of psychiatry. So they handed the field of 
breathing and hyperventilation syndrome to the psychiatrist. But the psychiatrist said it wasn't their domain. They handed <laughs> it back to the medical doctors. Yeah. And it fell between the two stools. And, you know, even physiotherapy, and physiotherapy, of course, is a wonderful modality. But teaching diaphragmatic breathing but not teaching nose breathing, that's a mistake. You cannot achieve diaphragmatic abdominal breathing without breathing in and out through the nose. You know, we have to consider that the airway is one airway. It's unified airway. We have to think of the nose. We have to think of, of the lungs. We have to think of the diaphragm. And, you know, I suppose one reason that it hasn't been embraced as well is because it takes time to work with, with clients, you know, and it, like medical doctors don't have time. They're, they are required to see four patients every hour. Um, I know one medical doctor and we were like, she's one of our own instructors and we have a, a number of medical doctors on our board. Um, but the workload that they are put under, like how can you realistically assess somebody's breathing, you know, in 15 minutes and literally you don't have 15 minutes. I think her workload was 70 clients a day was what she used. 70 patients a day was what she had to, to see. She, you can't, there's no way it's not possible. So as a result, then it's turned every, it's turned it into a prescription machine because of speed, because of efficiency. Um, and breathing is just one of those things that could impart so many different benefits. Now I'm going to, before I go off on a tangent, I would say to people, slowing breathing can be difficult enough for some people when they, the mind is agitated. As I said before, you know, meditation is often prescribed, but how can you meditate if your mind is a mess, literally? So I would say the best way to do that is to do small breath holds. It has a calming effect on the mind and an exercise that you could do or anybody could be doing that has no side effects is take a normal breath in and out through the nose and then hold her nose and count to five. So it's normal breath in, normal breath out, five, four, three, two, one. Let go and breathe normal for 10 seconds. So now breathe normal for 10 seconds. This seems such a simple exercise. And again, take a normal breath in and out through your nose, hold your nose, five, four, three, two, one. Let go, but breathe in and breathe normal for 10 seconds. So you're just breathing normal for 10 seconds. And again, take a normal breath in and out and hold. Five, four, three, two, one. Let go, but to breathe in and breathe normal for 10 seconds. And again, take a normal breath in and out and hold. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay, so that's one exercise that can be very useful when people are stressed because, you know, hold your breath if the, the mind is agitated as opposed to just trying to focus on your breathing because you focus on your breath, your mind goes off, you're focusing on your breath, your mind gets off, goes off, you get frustrated and then you give it up. Yeah. Whereas you can calm down the central <laughs> nervous system and all you're doing is, and it's interesting there, you've taken up some mucus. Mm -hmm. And the reason being is because I had you take a normal breath in and out and hold. And as you held your breath, carbon dioxide increases in the blood a little, but nitric oxide accumulates in the nasal cavity. And when you let go, you're carrying that nitric oxide into your lungs. And nitric oxide is a bronchodilator. It helps open up the airways. So if there was a little bit of mucus trapped in the lungs, it can bring it up. So I'll just give you a couple of minutes on the biochemistry. Too. So if you sit mm. back into the chair, put one hand on your chest, one hand just above your navel. 
doesn't matter how you do it. You know, just I'll give you a very simple instruction. And what I want you to do is just tune into your breathing pattern. So you feel your breath coming in. There's your breath out. There's your breath coming into the body. And there's your breath leaving the body. There's a pause there. There's your breath coming into the body. And there's your breath leaving the body. And what I would like you to do is slow down the speed of your breathing. Okay. So there's your breath. So now you're at your breath in. Really slow, though. I shouldn't, shouldn't see as much movement. And a really relaxed and slow, prolonged exhalation. And you're having a relaxed and slow, prolonged exhalation. And then take a very soft and slow breath in. A very soft and slow breath in. Very soft and slow. And a prolonged and a relaxed exhalation. And the whole objective is to breathe about 30% less air into your body. You know that you are doing it correctly when you feel air hunger. This is the biochemistry aspect of breathing. I'm not concentrating on the diaphragm. I'm only concentrating on reducing the volume of breathing, reducing the minute ventilation to allow carbon dioxide to accumulate in the blood to generate a feeling of air hunger. Mm -hmm. Keep practicing that just for about 30 seconds or so. Now, when people with panic disorder practice that, sometimes it can tip them into a fight or flight response because they have an aversion of suffocation. This is where we have to go very gentle with them. I want to give them a teaspoon of the suffocation to decondition their body towards that feeling of suffocation, but I don't want to put them into that fight or flight. And it's a tremendous approach because, you know, when you slow down your breathing like that, generally what you will find is that within three to four minutes, you've got increased watery saliva in the mouth, your hands are getting warmer, and you feel drowsy. So it's a great exercise to do before sleep, but the air hunger we have to be careful with. Another aspect that we look at then is the biomechanics. So if you sit back into the chair and put your hands either side of your lower two ribs, so you have your side, have your hands either side of your lower two ribs, and as you breathe in, that your ribs are just gently moving out. And as you breathe out, your ribs are gently moving in. And as you breathe in, your ribs are gently moving out. And as you breathe out, your ribs are gently moving in. So as you breathe in, your lower ribs are gently moving out. And as you breathe out, your lower ribs are gently moving in. And to breathe light with this. So you can breathe. This is a deep breath in the true sense of the word. You should never hear a deep breath. Deep breath just means that you are breathing low. So because we want to maintain the biochemistry and the biomechanics. And now what I'm going to do is, as you do that, bring in cadence breathing. And I'm going to simply just have you breathe in for five seconds and breathe out for five seconds. So I'm just going to time it here. So you're breathing in, two, three, four, five, out, three, four, five, pause, in, two, three, four, five, out, three, four, five, pause, in, two, three, four, five, out, three, four, five, pause, in, two, three, four, five, out, three, four, five, pause, in, two, three, four, five, out, three, four, five, pause,
pause. So that there is simple cadence breathing. You're breathing in for five seconds, you're breathing out for five seconds. If you look at the research on cadence breathing, in terms of influencing the autonomic nervous system, the functioning of the body that's normally outside of our control, we have to think of two branches, the parasympathetic branch, which is responsible for rest and digest, and the sympathetic branch, which is responsible or regarded as fight or flight. And even looking at polyvagal theory, but what we want to do is we want to achieve a balance between the parasympathetic and the sympathetic response. And by practicing five breaths, six breaths, sorry, six breaths per minute, inhalation for five seconds, exhalation for five seconds, or inhalation for four seconds, exhalation for six seconds, it brings about a balance between the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system. Mm -hmm. it's, it's amazing the research that has been done in terms of cadence breathing and coherence, heart rate variability, and you know, stimulating the vagus nerve, improving alveolar ventilation, and conditions that are associated and anxiety has been looked at, post-traumatic stress, sleep, depression, that's just on the cadence of the breath. But what I would say to people is don't just focus on breathing in for five and out for five seconds. If you are doing it, do it very slow. So in other words, think of the balance between the biochemistry, the biomechanics and the cadence of breathing. Mm -hmm. You don't want to focus on one dimension and sacrifice the other two. That's what normally happens with breathing. And I'll come back to this. Nose breathing is absolutely the foundation of all three dimensions because your nose slows down your breathing to allow oxygen transfer to take place more readily from the lungs into the blood. Nasal breathing imposes resistance to your breathing to have a more normal carbon dioxide. Yes, you can still breathe too hard breathing through the nose. You can have fast upper chest breathing breathing through the nose, but it, you're less likely. Mm -hmm. Mouth breathing is the worst thing that we can do. Nobody should wake up with a dry mouth in the morning. If you have your mouth open in the morning, you know, if you have your mouth open during sleep, your sleep quality is not as good as it should be. Um, mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, it's like it, there's just simple terms. And I would love to see this getting out there in terms of people with anxiety, because something that even if they just practice that, it will cost them absolutely nothing um, and put it into practice. Now, of course, you can go deeper. And I only want to give you a snapshot of that. But for people to start doing that, at least check, do they have the mouth open? Are they sighing a lot? Because a sigh every few minutes is not a, it's not a, an ideal sign. It can suggest that the person, you know, they have air hunger, that they are feeling that they are not getting enough air. And how do you address that air hunger? Well, nasal breathe all the time. Do all of your physical exercise with your mouth closed, even if you go for a run. Initially, it's tougher. But if you expose your body to a little bit of air hunger by either slowing down and reducing breathing volume, or going for a walk with your mouth closed, or running with your mouth closed, if you can do it, that in turn then will quieten your breathing. And as your breathing becomes naturally slower and diaphragmatic, the air hunger reduces. Mm -hmm. So what we want to do is, you know, you think of panic disorder years ago, people used to say, well, if you're having a panic attack, breathe in and out of a bag. Mm -hmm. Like the whole purpose of the bag was not to bring in oxygen, but it was to trap the carbon dioxide that was coming from the lungs into the bag to rebreathe that carbon dioxide back into the lungs, to increase it in the blood, because as carbon dioxide increases in the blood, blood flow to the brain increases, the carotid arteries dilate, and this is a calming effect on the brain. The brain feels air hunger when it's not getting enough oxygen. 
and a panic attack. When I look at the people, the breathing of people who are prone to panic disorder, these people are teetering on the brink of symptoms. It's not the crowded place that's the problem. It's not the supermarket. It's not the, the driving the car. The problem is their everyday breathing is not right, that they have a habit. And that's all it is. It is a habit of persistently over-breathing and breathing incorrectly, which can be changed. And by doing that, you improve your resilience. So when you do go into a crowded place, you are better able to cope with it. But I have to say, yeah, sorry, I'm just going to make one. Yeah, 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 please, please. When I give a talk to a group of individuals who work with mental health, I spoke about the benefits of functional breathing. And I said, it's, I said cognitive behavioral therapy is absolutely wonderful, which it is. But I said to them, I said, it's not addressing respiratory physiology. And nobody wanted to hear what I was saying because they felt that I was saying that cognitive behavioral therapy wasn't good enough, which I wasn't. And that I was saying that, you know, I think people felt that the healthcare professionals that I was talking to, because I couldn't get over it. Like I was running this through my mind afterwards. I was saying, now I know why breathing hasn't got into healthcare and it hasn't being embraced in in psychotherapy because the individuals that I spoke to that day they couldn't accept that you know breathing does play a role and that's why I would say to you, you know any of your listeners you're probably wondering like why is this so good that I haven't been told about it well we have to consider human nature here we are all resistant to change you know, if, if I'm practicing something for 20 years, as I was doing with Buteco, I was resistant to moving outside of Buteco. It was only when I did Oxygen Advantage that that mm. kind of opened up that door. So I think it's a very innate, I think it's a normal trait of the human being that we are slow to embrace or to adapt to change. Some people do, but the majority of people are not resistant. But I would say to the listener here is give this a go. Um, you know, because you will generally feel a difference in two weeks. And even if you were to just do this, sit back into a chair, have your lips together, just put one hand on your chest, one hand just above your navel, tune into your breathing and gently slow it down and gently slow it down to the point of a little air hunger. So deliberately reduce the amount of air coming into your body. Do it for a minute or two. See how it feels. If it's comfortable, um, you know, continue for three minutes. If it gets a bit stressful, take a rest, then start again. Can you influence your blood circulation by slowing down your breathing? If you start to feel that your hands are getting warmer, you know that you are on the right track. And it's not just that you are increasing blood flow to your hands, you're also increasing blood flow to the brain. Sorry, Howard, to cut across you there. No, 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 it's absolutely fine. Um, I was going to say, do, do you not get just really frustrated when you have people or see people who are coming with uh, anxiety that are going to traditional therapeutic therapists, psychotherapists, uh, counsellors, who are essentially essentially sort of daubing their very oversimplified breathing strategies to people uh, and just getting people to take deep breaths and then doing the the yes and so on yeah and do, do you not just sit there going oh goodness me and because that's keeping them trapped essentially 
Yeah, I would agree. And it's not offering any benefits, you know, even though it like it does feel satisfying to take that big breath because you're stretching everything and you're releasing it. But it can disrupt the biochemistry. And that that is the issue. You know, I suppose I realized going back maybe 15 years ago that not everybody wants to hear or wants to hear any different approach. But while I did that, that's why I wrote so many books, because I can put out the information. Like, you know, nobody's, think about COVID at the moment. Mm. Nitric oxide, there's clinical trials on nitric oxide for COVID-19. Um, and 2005, coronavirus, which was SARS, coronavirus is a family, of course, this is a different strain, but the SARS virus back in 2005, Laboratory experiments showed that nitric oxide inhibited the replication of the cycle. The nose is a source of nitric oxide. There's clinical trials. If you put in cl clinical trials, nitric oxide USA, you will see that there is clinical trials now on nitric oxide as a treatment of the current COVID-19. Mm -hmm. But nobody's talking about nose breathing. So I wanted to get the information out there. And I did. I just did a simple webinar two weeks ago on COVID-19 and it was oversubscribed. I didn't realize on Zoom you can only have 100 people and people were disappointed they wanted to hear it. So I put it up on YouTube and I put it up. It's after having a half million views and all I did was go through exercise and talk about what can you do here. So this is the beauty about getting the information to the general public and having people putting it into practice and you will never, like all, all I would say is that with breathing don't think that don't have it in your mind that it's good to be taking those hard, big breaths because it's not going to increase oxygen. And just ask yourself, how do you feel? If you're feeling lightheaded, it's not a good sign. Now, I understand with holotropic breathing, it's a deliberate hyperventilation for a period of time as a stressor to deal with trauma. That's fine. It's short term. But it's not how we should be breathing all the time. I'm concerned about how is the person breathing when they walk down the street? How are they breathing when they drive their car? How are they breathing when they are asleep? How are they breathing when they get into stress? That's the breathing that we need to be looking at. So there is a time that people will be practicing hyperventilation if they're doing the Wim Hof technique, etc. I don't teach hyperventilation. I'm trying to address dysfunctional breathing patterns. So I was going to ask you about the, 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 the Wim Hof method uh, because officer, people uh, have been using it for years and um, I think there was an idea at one point that he had some special sort of genetic disposition to be able to stay under the water and deal with these things. But of course, he's used his framework to be able to teach other people to do it successfully too. Yes. Which so, so so even though you don't teach it, does that fly in the face of some of these things that you're talking about, or or it's it's easily explicable within the methodology that you're coming from? Like in terms of, in terms of the science with the Wim Hof technique, all I can look at is I can look at one paper that was published by Matthias Cox, and mm. I think it was published back in 2014, and they looked at it in terms of blood oxygen saturation. It didn't increase during the hyperventilation, during the retention, which was the breath holding, blood oxygen saturation really dropped, quite remarkably, um, to Mount Everest um, standards. You know. To lower your blood oxygen saturation down to 40 or 50 percent is 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 incredible, really. And the, the individuals doing the Wim Hof were able to do that. Their carbon dioxide levels dropped and didn't return back to baseline. And really what they looked at is they looked at the impact of the hyperventilation 
It's 30 breaths followed by a breath hold, then breathe in, hold for 10 seconds, then 30, 30 hyperventilation, big breaths again, breath hold, breathe in for 10 seconds, etc. They looked at the increase of epinephrine as a result. So what it did was that the technique, the breathing technique, it stressed out the body, which increased epinephrine, so stress in the, in the body, which caused the body to make adaptations. Mm-hmm. So I think it's an interesting um, it's an interesting model and it's an interesting breathing technique. I'm not sure if I would, if I was teaching the Wim Hof technique, I'm, I wouldn't teach it every client that comes into me, into my door, because I think some will, it will suit some, and I think it won't suit others. Um, it was like me working with reduced breathing with panic disorder. I thought I could use the same technique with all people coming in. I would see some people that could cope quite well with air hunger. And other people, it was scaring the life out of them. So I had to change all of these exercises. And this is what experience did. So, you know, we we have to bear in mind that there's different subsets in anxiety and panic disorder. And we should be tailoring the approach to these individuals. But this is what experience does. That's what I learned through experience. Now, I can still part that. We impart that onto our own instructors. Like, as I say to them, you know, the mistakes that I've learned over the years, I'm hoping that you don't have to make these same mistakes because it can take you a while to figure out what's going on here. You're seeing a student in front of you and instead of you making them feel calm, you're making them have the opposite effect. Mm-hmm. And the issue is that they don't come back to you the next time because, you know, they think you're they're making you worse. Whereas I've learned that and this way then I can prepare the student, but I can also prepare the instructor. So a lot of people now that we train, we, ha- we train a lot of healthcare um, instructors providers and this is great i think breathing now is becoming hotter is becoming better well known and i have to thank the Wim Hof technique for part of that because it has really put the breath out there it's not a part of western culture western culture is to be doing something to be achieving to be <laughs> constantly yeah. going western culture is you know the, the guy who sits in the corner bringing his attention or her attention inwards is considered maybe a dosser but one of the best things that we could ever do in life is take attention out of the mind, onto the breath, into the body, in terms of concentration, in terms of well-being, in terms of happiness, in terms of bringing a stillness to the mind. Because the chattering mind, how do you quieten the chattering mind? Well, I would say we have to change breathing physiology. There is a connection between the diaphragm and the emotions. If you are breathing fast upper chest breathing, you are going to have an increased chattering mind. Look and Google Stanford Medical School, slow breathing. So Stanford Medical School, slow breathing. In March of 2017, they identified a new structure in the brain in the locus corollis. And they said that this structure, they first identified it in mice. They said that this structure is spying on your breathing. And if you breathe fast, This structure in the brain is relaying signals of agitation to the rest of the brain. And if you breathe slowly, this structure in the brain will relay signals of calm to the rest of the brain. So throughout our evolution, the only times that we ever got into a state of fast, rapid upper chest breathing was in times of emergency and stress. Now, if we are breathing that way all of the time, it's telling the body, it's in a state of emergency and stress. Mm. So um, I forget the point that I was going to make there, but I was going off at one tangent. But yeah, it's, it's, 
yeah, it's coming coming back to just embracing it from a number of different perspectives and looking at the potential of the bread and what it, what it can achieve. And I know we've, we've talked a fair bit about anxiety and really focused on that. But of course, you mentioned certainly in some of the, the books that you've talked about, working with people with asthma and physical yes. conditions. Um, yeah. it, it, so what, what do you use it for in terms of treating conditions? Is it just asthma or other stuff as well? Uh, the main conditions that I work with with breathing is is sleep, insomnia, mm-hmm. snoring, obstructive sleep apnea. For example, somebody who's snoring or somebody who's having obstructive sleep apnea, it's more likely when they are mouth breathing, hard breathing, fast breathing, because this is increasing the turbulence in the airway. This is causing resistance to breathing. Um, you know, if you breathe hard, you're more likely to snore. If you breathe light and slow, your breathing is soft and there's not as much resistance. And also the negative pressure, your airway is less likely to collapse if your breathing is light. We have to bear in mind that how we breathe during the day determines how we breathe during physical exercise and how we breathe during sleep. So sleep disorder breathing is about 30%. Yeah. Asthma is about 20%, 30%. Because of course, if you breathe through your nose, your nose exhibits a protective mechanism for the lungs. Your nose warms, moistens, regulates volume, but also nitric oxide by breathing through the nose, nitric oxide sterilizes the air, redistributes the blood throughout the lungs, and nitric oxide by redistributing the blood throughout the lungs increases the pressure of oxygen in the blood. So the PO2, this was discovered back in 1988, the PO2 in the blood increased by 10% with continuous nose breathing versus mouth breathing. Like, and you know, even despite this, despite the Bohr effect in 1904, despite this recognition in 1988. Um, and there's some tremendous doctors writing about it. One is a, an ear, nose and throat doctor from New Zealand called Dr. James Bartley. And he's written some great stuff on it. Your Dr. Claude Lum from pa- Papward Hospital yeah. in Cambridge in the 70s, super. Timmins and Lee. You know, there are doctors writing more and more out of about this, but I would love to see it getting into the, main, into the hands of the general public. Children. You know, we have children coming in. We've put our, our free, completely free, all of the exercise for kids are completely free online. Um, we put them up on YouTube, all of the exercises. So I wanted children. Children shouldn't be, you know, there shouldn't be a reason why any child, regardless of where they are in the world, that they cannot practice breathing exercise to help their health. So because sometimes I was thinking what well, kids might be able to afford it. But mm-hmm. if, if they now have access to the Internet, they can just do it. Now, with asthma, it's such a strange, we've 20 clinical trials in asthma, and I've been involved with five of them, co-author on the last two of them there in children. We showed really good improvements in terms of sleep and asthma in children by getting them to breathe through the nose. And, you know, I think it's remarkable that we are making some inroads there. So, yeah, come on to make it short. Asthma, sleep, anxiety, children, and athletic performance. Those are the main fields that I work with. Yeah. And I mean, one thing that comes across uh, as I'm talking to you is there's a feeling, which I had as I read uh, certainly the oxygen advantage, it was just this kind of sheer, like, why aren't people, more people knowing about this? Yes. There's so much yeah. research and there's so much yes. useful stuff. And, and some of it is not even complicated or difficult to practice. Yeah. Yeah. Why is it not being out there? I mean, going back to that story of me being at the spiritual consultant, you know, yes. and him just saying, well, you know, it's probably just anxiety. Just take some deep breaths. 
And yes. th these are people whose job it is to see people who are struggling with breath day in, day out. And it's not even on their yes. radar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's too simple. Like, you can also ask the question, why weren't we taught about stillness of the mind in school? Mm. You know, we were we were taught how to think. We were trained how to analyze, to decipher, to reason, to break information into tiny pieces. The mind was developed into a thinking tool. We were trained how to think, but we were not trained how to stop thinking. And that's simple, even though it can be challenging, bringing our attention into the present moment, taking our attention onto the breath, you know, bringing our attention into the body awareness. You know, it's simple. Um, and But look at the potential. You know, like how is somebody who normally presents with anxiety, how is that addressed? Is it often using maybe prescribed medication? And if you look at some of the clinical trials and that, that the prescribed medications, often they don't even perform better than the placebo effect. You know, so uh, like, I suppose... I, yeah, I've often wondered why I, as a kid, why I wasn't taught to nasal breathe. I often wonder why people with sleep disorders, they are not taught to nasal breathe. People with asthma, why are they not taught to nasal breathe? Because people with asthma typically breathe open mouth, faster and harder breathing, which is feeding their condition. But it's just that the breath, it's not seen as being sexy. It's not, you know... If you're doing a clinical trial as a medical doctor, you don't want to do a clinical trial on breathing because it's not good for your ego. It's, there's no, you get no respect out of that. You know, your colleagues, even despite you'll have great medical doctors who are interested in breathing, but the colleagues are going to poo-poo them. You should be doing research on stem cells. You should be doing research on the latest, you know, the latest thing, that, the best thing that's out there in terms of scientific um, progress. How breathing, but this is where it's at. Breathing is so simple. We should never overlook the intelligence of the human body. We have a great function there. We last without breath just for a few minutes. It's really vitally important that we, we give it to consideration. So look, if people are, are listening to this and they're thinking, okay, this does sound like something I've got to look into, where mm -hmm. can they go and how can they get in touch with you to find out more? Um. They could, if they're interested in terms of anxiety and panic disorder and depression, but I would say to go to butecoclinic.com. That's B-U-T-E-Y-K-O clinic.com. I also wrote a book 10 years ago on this. It's called Anxiety Free, and it brings together mindfulness with the Buteco method. And if people are interested in sports performance, oxygenadvantage.com. So oxygenadvantage.com is all about performance concentration, resilience, and butecoclinic.com is, you know, different health, health issues. Now, you mentioned um, that you recorded a, a YouTube video about exercise people could do during the COVID-19. Yes. And obviously, yeah. that, that just to, to date this uh, conversation, that's where it's now uh, towards the end of April that we're having this conversation. So yes. the UK is currently in lockdown. Uh, it's the height of uh, the corona ep uh, pandemic. Um, would you be okay for me to share on the podcast page? Uh, yes, of a, course. A, a link to that uh, video. Yeah, yeah. And actual fact, all of those exercises would be helpful for the mind, because with COVID nineteen, if people have respiratory distress, I have to go very easy. 
And of course, if people have emotional distress, I have to go easy. So the exercise in terms of small breath tolls, gentle, slow breathing, light breathing, in actual fact, that could be a great place. That's 40 minutes. So not only could it help if you have respiratory distress, but it will also help if you have emotional distress. And I would also say to people is, if you wake up at a dry mouth in the morning, start looking and getting your mouth closed during sleep. It's very, very important. It was one of the best things that I did in terms of waking up feeling refreshed. And I remember as being a youngster in school, you know, if you don't have the, if you don't have a good night's sleep, it's very difficult to concentrate. That I would be looking at a page in a book, but my attention wasn't there because my attention was stuck in my head. And I think it's all, it's all interconnected. So we need to look at, you know, we can't just look at, um, you know, breathing it by itself. But I would say, yeah, definitely breathing is where I put the focus on, but we have to take into consider the consideration the emotions and sleep. Patrick, this has been so fascinating, and thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, to talk to me and to share some of these thoughts. I really, really, really hope that all of the people listening go and look into this in more detail and start playing around with it, not just for themselves, but also looking broader, uh, how they can yeah. help more people looking more functionally at not just uh, the psychological stuff uh, around all yes. this, but looking at yeah. the breathing and the impact of that. So, so thank you. Is there anything that you'd like to add and share with the audience that um, I haven't asked directly? I've got a 20-minute relaxation MP3 file that I put the, I'll give you the link. And it was, it's the CD that, that's found in the book Anxiety Free, and people got a lot of benefit from it. Um, so you could listen to this before you go to sleep or whatever but yeah it's something that I, I sometimes listen to myself so it's relaxation bringing together relaxation with breathing exercises just to allow you just to take some time out give yourself give yourself a rest take a holiday from the mind fantastic thank you so much Patrick really appreciate your time today I hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did why not share it with anyone you think might be interested and even head over to iTunes to give us a glowing review. You'll find more about what's coming up on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash rapid change matters hyphen podcast. And of course, you'll find all the links related to this episode, plus those upcoming live events that will help you hone those change work skills.